3: Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear stories about a desperate mother who was jailed for cooking a woodpecker, and how Einstein, yeah, that Einstein, how he gave a student some incorrect math advice. And then we'll discuss a teacher who demonstrated state-of-the-art technology for back then, if you remember this, a filmstrip projector. And then there was the snake who decided to join a woman for a bath. You'll hear all those stories, plus the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and much more. It's all coming up next on today's Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast.
2: Useless Information
3: Hi, everyone. I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, I have my wife, Mary Jane, uh, back with us to so say hello. Uh, hi,
0: everyone. Hi.
3: And today's actually a special day for two reasons. First, uh, uh, first is, it happens to be my cousin Michelle's birthday when we're recording this. so Oh, yeah.
0: happy birthday. And I know right. she listens,
3: so we'll say hello. There'll be a few days before she actually gets a message. Mm. And uh, it's actually a more important day in history. Do you know what that is?
0: Today? No, Steve, but I'm sure you're going to tell me.
3: I am. It's actually on this day, <laughs> 17 years ago, we met for the first time. Oh, my goodness.
0: Wow! Thank you for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <Steve>. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
3: Uh, the the advantages of having a Google Calendar, you get to uh, actually yes, you're uh, good at that. Keep track of that kind of stuff. I bet you never dreamed that you'd be on a podcast when I met you.
0: Yes, and I probably didn't know what a podcast was.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think they were just just invented just at that point. So, uh, yeah. and of course, a few years later, I started mine. But uh, here you are, aren't you lucky? Yeah. Anyway, let's dive into it. Here's my first story for today. You ready? Mm-hmm. So the story takes place on February 22nd of 1911. You see, Mr. and Mrs. Albert Erickson, they welcomed their daughter Evelyn Ruth into the world, and she was born at the Norwegian Lutheran Deaconess Home and Hospital in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn, New York, which actually isn't too far from where I was born. Now, Evelyn was reportedly a very, very big baby, actually gigantic. She weighed in at 16 pounds or 7.3 kilograms. Now, Mr. Erickson, as you can imagine, was eager to see the newborn, but he was informed by a nurse that he had to wait a couple of days. They did permit him to sit outside of the hospital room, and he was kept updated as to the progress that his wife and the baby were making. But then the nurse on duty went to dinner around 7 p.m., and when she returned, Mom was still asleep, but baby Evelyn was gone. So, of course, you know, baby is missing from the hospital. Panic ensued. You know, they wondered, could someone have kidnapped the baby? But then it was learned that an orderly had seen Mr. Erickson leaving the hospital with what appeared to be a small bundle hidden beneath his overcoat. So the hospital staff they raced off to the Erickson home, which was located at three sixty six forty eighth Street, and of course they found that nobody was there. A little detective work determined he had gone to three fifty fifty third Street, which is the home of friend Charles Nupson. He unwrapped the baby and of course proudly displayed his newborn daughter. When a family member questioned if Evelyn could catch a cold, he replied, Nonsense, she's a fine baby. Now as proud as Albert Erickson was of his newborn daughter, he was ordered to return the baby to the hospital immediately, and he reluctantly agreed to do so. Evelyn was then examined by the staff at the hospital, and they found she was no worse for wear, and she was expected to fully recover. Now, dad, on the other hand, was told he could no longer visit his daughter at the hospital unless, of course, he was accompanied by a staff member. So I have to say, the one, after researching this, I found several articles. The 16 pounds or 7.3 kilograms, it just seems crazy. I thought that was an error. What yeah, do you think? Yeah,
0: I would say for the time period. And also, they seem really concerned about the baby. So I think it was a small baby, like yeah. six pounds.
3: Yeah, maybe. probably six pounds make, uh, makes more sense. All I could think is 16 pounds. I wouldn't say it's a record, but that is a really heavy, yeah. that, that's like a really big, heavy bowling ball.
0: Yeah, um, and I, it seemed like they didn't want the the father to really go in and see the child. It really was, it seemed like it was fragile.
3: Right, so six pounds makes more sense. But it is a cute story. Uh, just the father was so proud of his baby, he just sure. kidnapped it and, yep. and, so, and so took it her to show So ignorant to off. what
0: he was doing, yes.
3: Yeah, so <laughs> anyway, let's move on. You're going to do the next story.
0: Okay. On August 5, 1932, 36-year-old Anna Chess was serving a 20-day sentence in the Fayette County Jail in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Her crime? She had taken a woodpecker from its nest and cooked it. Mrs. Chess, who lived with her husband and two children in nearby Fairchance, was reported by neighbors to game warden R.G. Bryson that she had been stealing the Flicker woodpeckers from their nest, Bryson went to investigate and caught Mrs. Chess red-handed. She was frying one of the birds in a skillet at that very moment. Bryson placed Mrs. Chess under arrest, and she was arraigned before Justice of the Peace William J. Rubel. Mrs. Chess explained that she had immigrated to the United States 11 years prior and that the birds were often used for food there. She wasn't aware that the woodpeckers were a protected species under a Pennsylvania game law and accepted full responsibility for what she had done. She was fined $10, approximately $193 today, for violating the game law. The problem was that Mr. Chess was an unemployed truck driver at the time. The couple had no way to pay the fine. Meanwhile, an additional $10.50 in court fees had been assessed, Bringing the total to twenty dollars and fifty cents. That's three hundred and ninety five dollars today. She was hauled back into court, and justice of the peace Rubel was left with no option but to place Mrs. Chess in jail for twenty days. Not long after this story appeared in the newspapers, public outrage began to grow. Stories describe Mrs. Chess as a poor mother who was simply attempting to feed her two starving children and did not deserve such a harsh sentence for what she had done. Fayette County District Attorney Wade K. Newell was one of those who felt the pressure. He agreed to ask Justice of the Peace Rubel to modify his sentence and, if that failed, make a further appeal to the state game commissioners. But before that happened, Governor Gifford Pinchot intervened. On August 8th, he telegraphed Justice of the Peace Ruble and said that he would send the money to pay for the fine. I was informed that Mrs. Chess is in jail for having caught a flicker and feeding it to her children, who were hungry, the governor stated. I am heartily in favor of protecting game birds and have no intention of condoning the killing of them for food. On the other hand, I decline to see a woman put in jail for feeding her children. The Game Commission, while it was properly responsible for prosecuting her for illegal possession of the bird, was in no way responsible for her being put in jail, and learned of it for the first time through the newspapers. A money order was sent to Justice of the Peace Ruble, but there was one problem. It was only made out for seventeen dollars ninety cents, not the ten dollars plus ten fifty in court fees. Rubel stated Maybe I'm wrong, but I figure that makes twenty dollars and fifty cents. He continued, Don't misunderstand me. I'm willing to charge off my costs for the governor and let Jim Crosslin, the deputy warden, have his in full, but I certainly hope I never hear the word woodpecker again. After six days in the slammer, Mrs. Chess was now free as a bird. She was met on the jail steps by her family. As she placed her arms around her two sons, Nietzsche, 10, and Joseph, age 8, she stated, The governor is a fine man.
3: So, the one thing uh, that I read was that these birds, you know, basically when they're sitting on their nest, and I can tell you this is true about our uh, pet bird, when she's sitting on her nest, basically you can just go up to the nest and And just just grab the bird. And I'm pretty sure that's what she did there.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a sad story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also read that there are only four about four ounces in weight. So those people were really, um, you know, very, really hungry, obviously. Yeah, very and small It's kind birds. of a sad story.
3: Yeah, um, it was a very sad story. And, uh, you know, luckily it worked out in the end, but you have to wonder right. how many other people you know, didn't get the notoriety that he can get into the newspapers and had to serve their time. Or you
0: hope that some people just used some compassion and didn't, you know, actually just told them, you know, don't do it next time or something like that. Gave Mm -hmm. them a second chance.
3: Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. Sure. So before I tell the next story, I'm going to ask you a little question. You ready? Of
0: course. Sure. Okay.
3: <laughs> um, so I'm going to play a little uh, snippet of a song, and that's mainly because of copyright reasons. I'm just going to do a little sure, tiny snippet it of it. to be short. Yep. Yeah. I think it's about 10 seconds long. Uh, the song was written and performed by a man that Rolling Stone magazine ranks as the eighth greatest songwriter of all time. And of course- Oh Ro- my
0: goodness. Okay. Yeah, uh,
3: of course, Rolling Stone is very biased towards the rock mm, era. It's sure. you know, a classic rock. But anyway, uh, let's see if you can name this uh, musician. And don't say anything until the end of the podcast, oh, okay? okay, sure. You ready? Here we go. Sure.
1: Because I'll go bang, bang. He's the Long Teen Ranger. Wild silver, there he goes. He's the Long Teen Ranger. Who was
3: that? Anyway, I... I quickly right. cut it off at the end there that's, because that's he going starts back aways for me. Yeah, uh, this personally, song, that song's from 1962. But I yes. guarantee you, you know exact. I mean, when I mention the person's sure, name, you're sure, I'll
0: know the person. But right. okay. I don't right now. Yeah, at the end right of the ahead.
3: podcast, <laughs> you'll uh, learn as will everybody else. Maybe okay. someone knows, but uh, sure. I, I wouldn't have known unless uh, I had come. I came across the clip on YouTube. Okay. And I thought it was uh, kind of an interesting one. And after this, I'm not doing any more music ones for a while. We're going to move on oh, to other. The trivia. music
0: ones are nice, but I yeah. don't. I don't have the answer to this one.
3: <laughs> That's true. If you multiple
0: listen... choice, I'm a little better at.
3: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah usually you have a one in a four, one in a five chance. Right. You know, twenty five percent. I know I've told you this before. But I don't think I've ever mentioned on the podcast uh, here in New York State. At the end of the year, um, they give Regents exams, which are basically right. you know state finals. And uh, I was teaching physics at the time. And these two kids were graduating. They didn't care what their score was. Yeah. Uh, never bothered to study. They put. They decided one kid would go in there and just put like uh, the same, ch- the same answer all yes. the way down. So say uh-huh. choice three all the way down. Sure. And the other kid did one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, oh, two, three, four. a
0: different pattern. <laughs> right. And they
3: wanted to see who got a higher score. And? and I seem to recall the kid who did one, two, three, four got like a 14 on the exam. And the oh kid who did... Uh, you know, like choice three all the Always way down, the same one. got like a, you know, maybe got a few points less, you know, so, th- wow. so, w- so, and then I got called in on the carpet because they did that, but you know, you just give the exam. I mean, yeah, you know, have no control. Over yeah. That. You can't offer them any assistance or anything. So anyway, yep. you know, that's what kids do when they're graduating. They don't really care. They're in college and yep. Yep. off into the real world. Let's move on to the last story that I wrote for today, and then we'll do some of the uh, shorter tidbits uh, after that. Okay. It was reported on May 16th, 1952, that 15-year-old Joanna Mankiewicz, who lived at 1050 Stone Canyon Road in the Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles, California, she was stumped by a problem that a geometry teacher had assigned. And of course, so were all of her classmates. So Joanna decided the best thing to do was to get some help from someone who was really smart. And when I say smart, I mean really, really, really smart she decided to write a letter to the famed physicist 73-year-old Albert Einstein at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. She wrote, quote, Our geometry class found itself at a loss today when no one in the class could do a certain problem. I realize you're a very busy man, but you are the only person we know who could supply us with the answer and let us keep ourselves busy at our other business. So, if you could possibly work this problem for us, we would be very grateful. Here is the problem. The common external tangent of two tangent circles of radii 8 inches and 2 inches is dot dot dot. I think you will agree it is the hardest thing. Very respectfully yours, Joanna Mankowitz, and in print she writes, Secretary of the Sophomore Class. P.S. I think you knew my grandfather, Professor Frank Mankowitz at CCNY, which of course is the City College of New York. Surprisingly, Einstein took the time to sketch out a diagram on the back of Joanna's letter, which he said would lead her to the solution. His reply was sent back via airmail, which was not cheap. And Einstein, like all good teachers, did not provide her with the exact answer, so of course the students had to work to come up with the answer themselves. Now their solution was 8 inches, which according to my calculations is the correct answer. But shortly after the story appeared in the national papers, an Athens, Ohio high school math teacher named Harold Lee wrote to the paper saying that Einstein had made a mistake in his diagram. Quote, I am not one to challenge Dr. Einstein on his knowledge of mathematics, but his diagram does not agree with the statement of the problem. He added, Einstein's solution is correct for finding the external tangent to any two circles, but it is not the best solution for this specific problem. And basically Einstein's error is that he didn't touch the two circles together. The problem specifically specified that the two circles had to be tangent or touching one another. Lee concluded he probably just missed that word, tangent. Well, I guess even geniuses make mistakes sometimes.
0: That was cute. I'm I'm glad he responded.
3: Of course, being a physics teacher, I got a lot of gifts over the years, both from students and friends, uh, you know, with Einstein on it. Einstein. In fact, right right behind your head on the shelf is a little uh, doll of Einstein that uh, actually uh, my friend yeah. Jamie's uh, kids, uh, Megan and Dylan, gave me many, many years ago. That's but cute. I have an Einstein mug, an Einstein tie. Um, even my book was called Einstein's Refrigerator, the Ryan. first one. Yeah. So a uh, big part of my life. Anyway, let's move on.
1: Sure. Now, Warren, how? Thanks, Jack. Now, friends, I have a letter here that makes a very interesting point about log cabin syrup. It's from Mrs. B.R. Churchill of RFD No. 2, Fort Dodge, Iowa. Mrs. Churchill writes, Dear Mr. Hull, we live on a farm of 160 acres just three miles north of Fort Dodge, Iowa. Like most farm women, I often have pancakes for breakfast. In fact, we have them every Wednesday and Saturday. And until a few weeks ago, I always used the same syrup I cook with on pancakes. But I thought you'd be glad to know we tried the log cabin syrup. And I must say it does make a lot of difference. My husband agrees with me that log cabin syrup is worth a little more it costs. So we're going to keep using it right along. Well, thank you, Mrs. Churchill. And friends, that's the way to know how good log cabin syrup is. Just try it. And like Mrs. Churchill, you will discover that the extra maple flavor of log cabin syrup makes your pancakes, waffles, and hot biscuits the best you ever tasted. When it comes to pancakes and waffles, there's nothing like log cabin syrup. America's largest-selling fine table syrup. Log Cabin, you know, is a blend of three fine sugars, Canadian and Vermont maple and pure southern cane in perfect proportion for smoothness and true maple flavor. Get some tonight or first thing Monday.
3: That commercial for Log Cabin Syrup is from the January 22, 1938 broadcast of the Log Cabin Jamboree starring Jack Haley. The show ran from 1937 through 1939 and was your typical radio variety show. Actually, not much different from the TV shows. You had jokes, skits, and, of course, musical interludes. Haley, of course, is best remembered today for his role as the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, which we've uh, both seen many times. Yes, of course. Yeah, yep. one, one one of my favorite movies. I know, uh, Kids Today hate it, but it's actually one of my favorite movies. Anyway, moving on. Um As for log cabin syrup itself, it was invented in 1887 by a St. Paul, Minnesota grocer named Patrick James Toll, Uh, and he just went by PJ, so PJ Toll uh, is how he's referred to in the press. At the time, the supply of pure maple syrup was both limited and costly, so he sought to formulate something that was both affordable and tasted like pure maple syrup. What he came up with was a blend of inexpensive cane sugar and maple sugars, as you just heard in the commercial. Of course, every product needs a name, so he thought about one of his heroes, that was Abraham Lincoln. And of course, Abraham Lincoln isn't a good name for syrup, but everyone knew that Lincoln's boyhood home was a log cabin, so he chose that as the name for his new product. To sell his new product, he formed a partnership with a guy named J.A. McCormick, but that partnership would last only about a year. The earliest known packaging wasn't the classic log cabin-shaped tins that are so famous today, Instead, they used a tall hand-soldered tin can that had a spout on the top, and it kind of reminded me of the cans they use for paint solvents today. You know, go to Home Depot, Lowe's, or True Value, or any uh, hardware store, and all the solvents, paint thinners are in those kind of cans. Anyway, the outside of this can had a colorful lithograph of a log cabin in a forest. In the foreground, there was a tap maple tree with a bucket underneath, of course, to collect the sap. And then there's a man shown pouring a bucket of that sap into a black cauldron, and it's hanging over an open fire. And a woman can be seen in the rear carrying a bundle of wood towards the fire. The can itself reads, Log Cabin Pure Maple Syrup, put up by Towel and McCormick, St. Paul, Minnesota. Now it's unknown if this particular container really had pure maple syrup or the sugarcane concoction in it. Now, the first log cabin tin, you know, the one that the company is very famous for, that was introduced about a decade later in 1897. But by 1904, the company was offering log cabin in three different formulations. There was, of course, pure maple syrup. There was what they called camp syrup or blended formula. That's what we were discussing. And then something called pinoche syrup, which was a pure cane sugar for making candies. That pinoche syrup was discontinued in 1909. Toll's died on September 6 of 1912 at 77 years of age. Then his sons ran the company and sold it to Postum which became General Foods in October of 1911. Currently Log Cabin syrup is manufactured by Pinnacle Foods, which is a division of Conagra Brands. From what I can tell, Log Cabin formulations today have no maple syrup in them at all. They are labeled as being an all-natural table syrup, and when you check the ingredients it's made from brown rice syrup, water, sugar, brown sugar, Natural flavor, xanthan gum, and citric acid. And honestly, I have no clue if that natural flavor is maple or not. And my hunch is if that it was maple flavor, they would mention it, wouldn't they?
0: You would think so, wouldn't you?
3: I have to tell you, it's really hard to appreciate how far removed these modern syrups are from real maple syrup. I don't care if you're talking about Log Cabin, Aunt Jemima, which is now the uh, Pearl Milling Company, or Mrs. Butterworth. They just taste nothing like real maple syrup. I have to tell you, I never had pure maple syrup growing up. My no, mom, mo- neither. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, my mom always joked she couldn't cook. In fact, she always joked that uh, she would bur- she could burn water, you know. Okay. So <laughs> right. uh, she wasn't that bad. She's just you know just kind of an average cook. So we always had the fake stuff. We always had uh, one of those brands that came right. in the in the we, bottles. We
0: did too. We got it from the supermarket. The mm-hmm. first time I ever had it was in a workshop on french canadian culture and we had to choose the correct one and i didn't because i i really had never tasted it before
3: yeah um actually the first time i ever had it i think was when your friend jules brought it down from quebec city maybe what about three four years ago yeah, maybe that,
0: now yeah pretty recently yeah,
3: yeah. um and uh
0: the, the taste is more subtle it's it, than what we're accustomed to right we're, we're used to something more sugary i think
3: yeah, I'm base. I'm used to uh, you know flavored sugar, I guess, on my pancakes. Yeah. Um, the one thing I do know is that it, it, it's actually quite costly to make maple syrup. I think it takes it's about a 40, 40 to one ratio. Yeah. So so basically, you know, if you're going to make a liter of uh, a liter or a gallon or a quart or whatever, you need forty times the amount of sap from the tree.
0: Right. It's it's costly and time consuming,
2: right? Right,
3: and that's why we all eat the fake stuff. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to a few more stories. Okay.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: So now we're going to do what I call footnotes history. These are just short little uh, tidbits that have been in newspapers, and uh, there's no further research to do on them. So we're just going to read them word for word. And we do have five of them. And the first one, I have to give a little, uh, you know, knowledge before, because it's a little bit confusing. And basically, it's a father and a son who marry a mother and her daughter, but it's kind of done in reverse. So the father marries the daughter, and the son marries the mother, right?
0: Yes, yes.
3: Yeah, and I know you read these, and uh, you found it a little bit uh, tricky to follow what was going on.
0: it's... It's highly unusual circumstances, Yes. Okay. Mm. So here we
3: go. This is from uh, October 21st, 1902. And uh, I do think the author who wrote this was just trying to have some fun with the topic. Uh,
0: Yeah, the circumstances, sure.
3: So it's titled, In Danger of Tangle, Should Children Be Born to Mr. and Mrs. Richard Massey Married Monday, The Awful Mix-Up Caused by Marriage of West Virginian to Stepdaughter. Parkersburg, West Virginia, October 21st. Richard Coleman Massey, aged 71 years, was married yesterday to Miss Pearl Odom, age 19. The bride is the step-granddaughter to the groom, Mr. Massey's son, having married the bride's mother. As the bride was not of age, it was necessary to secure the consent of her parents, and Massey's son had to give his official consent before his father could marry. The groom's son, by virtue of being the girl's stepfather, gave her away to his own father at the wedding ceremony. The elder Massey, by marriage with Miss Odom, becomes the son-in-law of his own son and thus his own grandson, while the younger Massey becomes his father's father-in-law or his own grandfather. The bride becomes her own grandmother, and the older woman is her own granddaughter. Should children be born to both couples, the tangle will be inextricable. This story, I have to say, reminds me, uh, years ago There's a story mm-hmm. of Bill Wyman, who was of the Rolling Stones. Uh, he married a much younger woman. I think she was like 19. And then uh, a- I think after they uh, separated or got divorced, his son turned around and married the girl's mom.
0: Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, so, uh, you that know. That
0: could be awkward at a family reunion. Yeah.
3: <laughs> that, that would be a little unusual. Mm. Anyway, uh, what you're going to tell the next story?
0: Yes. So this is from uh, June 4th, 1926. The headline is Snake Joins Woman in Bath. Mistaking a Burlingame bathtub for the Garden of Eden, a long, green, lively snake wriggled from a water faucet this afternoon and joined Mrs. Arthur Whiffler at her bath. Mrs. Whiffler's screams attracted her father, W.J. Fopley. When he appeared in the snake's presence, it was enjoying exclusive possession of the tub. Realizing that the episode would be received with interest in Burlingame among fashionable bathtub owners, Fopley made a more detailed examination of the collar. He found it to be a water snake, quite harmless, except to the nerves. It measured 19 inches long,
3: which is about 48 centimeters.
0: And then it ends with just three words, he killed it.
3: Yeah, obviously. If I saw a snake coming out of my faucet, I'd kill it also. Yes. Um, I have to say the one thing about that story that didn't sit right with me is that it came out of the faucet. If they had said it came out of the drain, I'd probably think of there's a little bit more truth to the story. I mean, you know, you always hear about alligators, even though it's not really true, but lots right. of living things in, in the sewers. In the sewer, but... but the actual water supply itself, you got to wonder, unless, you know, it was no, a— uh,
0: 1926, maybe—
3: you know, a pond or something sure, like that. Maybe
0: it's a little different, the, the plumbing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, definitely if I saw a snake coming out of the faucet, I would kill it also. I'd probably jump also. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't care how much you love snakes. If it just came out of your faucet. Uh, if there's
0: one place you want to relax and be calm, it's in your bathtub. You don't want to see a snake.
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, let's go on to the next story. All right. This so story is dated December 8th of 1949. Uh, the headline is High Flying Car. Aerodynamic engineers might check into what happened in Brighton, New York when an auto driven by Raymond Boyle ran head-on into a snowplow. I can tell you that's a big fear of mine. Uh, What happened was that the auto used the blade of the plow as a ramp, took off, gained altitude rapidly, leveled off at 12 feet, which is about 3.7 meters, sideswiped a telephone pole at that height, made a four-point landing, and taxied to a halt 81 feet from the point of flight. That's 24.6 meters, by the way. In repairing the car, Mr. Boyle decided to reject suggestions from awestruck friends that he pressurized the cabin of the car for future flights. Now, um, this story just reminds me what's going on in the news right now. They're talking about snow today.
0: Right, a little bit.
3: A little bit, not enough to accumulate, but we are heading into winter here. And I have to tell you, uh, when we get big storms and the plow is coming at me, It's actually quite scary. You know, I'm not even sure sometimes there's enough room for me to get my car through there.
0: Right. No, it's... No, I hate driving in winter. All (laughs) all winter driving, I hate.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So um, anyway, so this is not surprising. What I'm actually surprised is that he was unharmed because, I mean, those... I mean, of course, this is 1949, but I assume even back then, the plows were gigantic and very powerful. Right.
0: Much, much bigger than a car.
3: Yeah. Definitely wouldn't want a head on collision with one of those things. Okay. So you can move on with the next one.
0: Okay. So, this is from March 8, 1950, and the headline is Teachers Demonstrate Film Strip Projector. Ms. Clara Gillespie and Ms. L.J. Mann, teachers at Churchill Avenue School, gave a demonstration last night of the use of a film strip projector for visual aid work in the classroom. The film strip, a comparatively new device, is a cross between a motion picture and still slides. Producing still pictures, but faster and in better sequence than is possible with the use of slides. The demonstration was given to a meeting of the Churchill Home and School Club.
3: So, this actually reminds me of two stories. Uh, first right. one is uh, I went to a conference many years ago, it's got to be about 20 years ago or more right. in Buffalo. And it was a technology conference because I was always the guy who's into the newest technology at school. Yep. And, um, I'm sitting in this lecture and the person is showing PowerPoint, which is a brand new thing back then. 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Maybe 25 years ago. Uh-huh. And, uh, I thought it was kind of boring, but the one thing the person, the, the lecturer said was that early on in education, when the magic lantern came out, that's what those uh, slides. The carousel? No, carousel came later. Else. Magic okay. lantern was just like a big slide that uh, slid in and projected. Okay. Um, So anyway, when the magic lantern came out, then when radio, TV, you know, overhead projectors, here we have filmship projector, when every one of these technologies came about, you know, that was going to cure all the problems in education. And the the point, yeah, the point the lecturer is trying to make is now we have computers, and everyone's jumping on the computer bandwagon, and that was going to solve all the problems in education. Which I mean, it's definitely a tool. These are all tools, but uh, you know, uh, there's still a lot more to teaching a kid than. Uh, you know, the latest technology.
0: The technology devices,
3: sure. Uh, The other story I have uh, is actually a pretty funny one, and that is uh, in the district I taught in Chatham for 30 years. Of those 30 years, 29 of them, I ran the audio-visual department at the school. And basically I was in charge of, you know, putting TVs and, in the early days, video cassettes and, you know, VCR players and stuff into classrooms when they were needed. Anyway, so years go by, uh, maybe about five, six years ago, I'm just piling up this old technology in my back room, and it's actually getting kind of scary. I'm piling it up so high that I was afraid one day it was all going to fall on my head, and I finally got permission from the district to access some of the stuff. There's a whole process to, you know, you have to remove it from inventory, and they have to turn it over, and they actually put it up for auction, although I doubt anybody would buy this stuff. And uh, so so I'm going through my back room, taking inventory, trying to figure out what I want to get rid of. And for some reason, I just put a, a little film strip projector on the corner of my desk. I don't know why I put it there. And the bell rings, my class starts coming in, and I'm getting ready to teach. And one of the kids says, what's that? And I go, oh, it's a film strip projector. And another kid goes, well, what does it do? So I mm-hmm. run into my back room, and I get a film strip. When, uh, you know, I still had a few there. And I even had the cassette. So I get a cassette player, I hook the whole thing up and i start playing it and you know you remember how it worked it went you know yes, you, sure. the music would start playing and then it go and, you, you know you would you would flip you know, to the to next slide it. and i'm doing this and i'm just going through a few slides i wasn't really planning on showing more than that and all of a sudden one of the kids goes when does it start moving
0: yeah, they yeah. wanted. They thought they're going to see a movie.
3: Yeah, and of course, not realizing that that old technology—that's all you got—was a still slide.
0: Right,
3: uh, and that was state of the art. In fact, uh, when I started teaching, there was still a number of uh, teachers uh, still using that. Them. Yeah. Al- although, uh, just remind me of a third story, and that is, uh, I, um, there was a teacher who's retiring, and he was trying to use up his sick days. And uh, this is actually quite unusual. Most because we do get uh, a little bit of money for not using our sick days, but for some reason he was just using up his sick days and wasn't coming in very much. And uh, he left a film strip uh, for me to show, so I'm subbing for this one class. Oh, I go hmm. in there, and this is 1992, maybe 93, and I'm showing the film strip, and it you know goes <laughs> and uh, and it goes President Lyndon Johnson, and I'm thinking this is a little old. Oh <laughs> my goodness! Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do the last little story next. Okay. This one's dated August 24th of 1953, and the headline is Man Brings Sink and Daughter Too. Texarkana, Texas, Associated Press. Attendants laughed when Casey Williams walked into the hospital carrying a kitchen sink. Then they learned that the sink was firmly attached to a finger of four-year-old Joan Williams. Williams explained that his daughter got her finger stuck in the sink drain and he couldn't get it out. So he unbolted the plumbing fixture and brought both the sink and the child to the hospital. After a few minutes' work in the hospital, emergency room attendants reported that Joan's finger was saved, but the sink was lost. Mm. Yeah, and uh, kids get themselves into all kinds of trouble. You know, they're very curious at that age. Um, somewhere in my collection maybe I'll pull one of these yeah. out for a future podcast I have, a, I have several stories and they're all of little boys who put their heads into the toilet bowl oh and got their gosh. heads stuck in, in the seat oh. and of course the seat you know comes off and they'd have to go and cut the you know either call the fire department or whatever oh and, uh, and get okay. the uh, seat removed from around their head So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you about a song called The Lone Teen Ranger. Uh, I played just a little snippet of it. Uh, That's from 1962 and was credited to a guy named Jerry Landis. But of course, that's not his real name. And it reached number 99 on Billboard's chart. So it wasn't a big hit. Not popular. So did you have any clue who sang that song?
0: Well... When you gave his, his pseudonym, I guess I'm going to guess Jerry Lee Lewis, but I have no idea.
3: That's incorrect. <laughs> okay. Okay, here are some hints. Uh, just These are some lines from some songs that he's very famous for.
0: Uh, I still and, won't know, but yeah. go right ahead.
3: <laughs> okay, this would actually be the first uh, big hit he had. The first line was, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend.
0: Oh, my goodness.
3: You know the song, don't you? Yes. Okay, here's another line from the same song. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls. Uh,
0: okay. I know this is Simon and Garfunkel, but it's not the it, writer, is it?
3: Simon and Garfunkel. One of those two is the writer. So who who is who was Jerry Landis?
0: Oh, then it uh, it would be Art Garfunkel.
3: Nope. No. Okay. Paul Simon.
0: Oh, oh yes, of
3: course. Yeah, Paul Simon. He did more writing. Yeah, Paul okay. Simon basically wrote all of their songs. Uh, nearly all their songs. So. Okay. Anyway, he is listed on uh, Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest songwriters of all time. This came out in August of 2015. He was ranked as, what did I say, number 8, 8th greatest songwriter in the rock era. Wonderful. So um, I I actually happened to write down, uh, there was a long list, but I just wrote the top 10. So they considered the 10th greatest songwriter, Stevie Wonder. Nine was Joan Baez. Eight, as we said, was Paul Simon. Uh, Seven was Carole King and her ex-husband, Jerry Goffin. Six was the duo of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Keith Richards, I can't speak here. Five was Smokey Robinson. Four was Chuck Berry. Uh, three was John Lennon. Two, Paul McCartney. And he guesses who'd be the greatest songwriter in the rock era?
0: Elton John? I don't know.
3: No, uh, Bob Dylan.
0: Okay, Yeah,
3: so anyway, so that was Paul Simon, and clearly that was a novelty song. Um, I'm sure it's not— I
0: loved it. I mean, it was kind of humorous. I
3: actually, uh, you know, I didn't play the whole thing for you, but I listened to the whole thing. I didn't think it was too bad. I thought it was pretty well done for what it was.
0: Right, for what it was, yeah.
3: Okay, so uh, we'll bring this podcast to a close. All right. So with Thanksgiving coming uh, up here in the United States, not too far off, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Black Friday's uh, coming right after that. And in fact, Black Friday, I've heard, is spread throughout the world. It's not just in the U.S. today. Of course, people will be buying gifts for the holidays, and there's no better gift out there than my book, The Flipside History. Of course. <laughs> and it is made in the United States, so there's probably no shortage of them uh, if you want to get a copy. I, I think they only make a certain run, uh, and then they're all just printed on demand as needed, so uh, I don't think there's any shortage of them. But it would make a good gift for someone who likes trivia or, or uh, you know, quirky stories. Anyway, um, if you want to contact me uh, or Mary Jane, uh, you can do it uh, at my email address. at steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. I also can go through Facebook or use my website. There's a contact form there. Uh, The website is uselessinformation.org. Anyway, uh, we'll be back, uh, I guess, in December. And I think we'll do some right. Christmas stories then. Yeah. Um, so happy Thanksgiving or whatever, whatever you're celebrating or not celebrating out there, but enjoy right. Right. and take care, everyone. Bye. Okay. okay, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge.